0: chances for change right now are better than they've ever been. And I'm very hopeful. When we think about what we need to do is to go to those places where there's an enormous amount of suffering, but not necessarily any money. We need to really move all over the world to these humanitarian crisis areas where a lot of them can benefit greatly from MDMA
1: therapy. Mm -hmm. What you're proposing fills my whole fucking heart up because I know that who needs this medicine most I work with every day, right? Right. Narcan in hand because we continue to criminalize people, because we continue to criminalize poverty. We continue to criminalize because we don't have those choices. And the, the other thing that came very alive for me when we were talking is much like the healing revolution, breath work, somatic work, yoga, all of these things, access of that has never been democratized to the people who need it the most. Right it's, right. it's an elite proposition. And for them to be able to get it, we require a revolution. And that revolution also needs to put money in the hands of the practitioners who can then discern who they practice with as well. And that's always, always been the case, brother. So the bottom line effect of that truly is democratization of access and decriminalization for people who critically need these things. Uh, exactly right, Mark. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest, we must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all faced help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. This week is a guest that I have been, let me say it, let me say it with all sincerity, pursuing, since we hooked up the microphones to the show, Rick Doblin is literally a pioneering visionary and advocate for psychedelic medicine. Now, before you get freaked out by the word psychedelic, don't. That's what we're going to do here today. His goal and the goal of the organization he founded, MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, a 501c3 nonprofit research and educational organization dedicated to delivering global healing through psychedelic research, is providing the world and the U.S. government and the Canadian government and the global governments that when we couple therapy, psychedelics are an extremely effective PTSD treatment. And there's so much more to this. And as someone who has received it, I couldn't be more excited. Rick, welcome to the show. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for having me. It's
0: so important that we do this public education work now.
1: I couldn't agree more. And so I have a thousand ways I want to introduce you. But how do you introduce yourself these days when you (laughs) enter a room of hostiles or (laughs) non-hostiles?
0: Well, one way... I start by saying is that when I was 18 years old, I identified as a counterculture drug using criminal.
1: Amazing.
0: You know, I was a draft resistor for Vietnam prepared to go to jail. So, and the arc of my life over the last 50 years has been to move from being counterculture to being culture, to move from being criminal to being legal and to continue to find value in using psychedelics throughout the lifespan. So I also would say that I've got uh, two main trainings. One of them is in public policy through my master's and PhD from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, focused mostly on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana. And then the other training has been as trying to become a psychedelic psychotherapist from Stan Groff who's my mentor who I've learned holotropic breath work from sort of hyperventilation to bring out psychedelic states so that I have that dual training sort of individual therapy for people and then cultural therapy for sick public policies.
1: I love that framing for sick public policies. I mean, (laughs) is there any that are well at this moment? Do we have any well public policies, Rick? (laughs) Are there any that you can
0: define? Uh, democracy, yeah, but democracy has uh, got a major fever right now, and uh, you know, hopefully, it will survive.
1: Yes, yeah, and and adapt as as we want everything to do. And I think the medicine has yeah. a a large role to play there. One of my mentors and dear friends, Patricia James, who's also been in this movement for a long time, said, "You know, I wish that every single person who is an elected force had to experience something that would bring them to their heart center." Can you imagine?
0: That would be great. But I do think, and this is actually something that came to me during a um, two days, one day where I had DMT, the second day where I had ketamine, which is that while it's important that we want our elected officials to have a broader perspective on things, to realize that deeper than our nationality, our religion, our gender, our culture is that we're all part of this human family and the web of life on earth to really understand that, that we have more in common than we have separate, that that is something that's really important. But that instead of just going to the leaders, we need mass mental health and we need a spiritualized humanity. And that means that there's two sort of policies that MAPS is pursuing. One is drug development to make psychedelics available to people that have clinical conditions that, like PTSD or depression, Um, or substance use disorder, things like that. But then the other is drug policy reform because these substances need to be available to people outside of medical constraints, outside of religious frameworks for personal growth, spirituality, celebration, all sorts of many, many uses that go beyond just medicine and spirituality.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I think when we are able to step back and observe medicines as tools, as we do the rest of the drug classifications, I think about, I go into the dentist, I get my mouth numb. There's something going into my body that is creating a relief to allow work to happen.
0: Yeah, that's a great analogy, actually. Um, the only difference, I would say, is that the psychedelics make you the opposite of numb. Yes, sir. You know, they make it so that emotions that have been overwhelming can now be assessed and accessed and processed without that that extreme fear that causes people to freeze up or to go in patterns that can repeat for decades and decades that they can't get out of because it seems like it's too painful to look at the core issues. So it's the opposite of numb, but but the analogy of it makes it less painful. So there's other work can be done. That's where it
1: holds up. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a sober person. I'm coming on seven years this year. I'm straight edge sober, but I use psilocybin and MDMA under supervised sessions and to do long journeys to pull out my own PTSD and my own trauma, and it's literally changed my entire life. And why I put that in the conversation is people who are sober living are often working on their trauma and are in fear of using these medicines that they may have a relapse or a slip. And to further say that they are tools, they really are, and in our states to be able to go inwards and find those pieces is so, so critical. But because they've been, and this has been a big part of your entire message your battle is because people start to use them as quote-unquote party drugs that's where the fear came in and the fear from government came in and then of course the criminalization came in which then skewed the entire process Uh, so how and you've been very successful in this how do you then change the image of something that has created an entire counterculture uh, of an underground dance scene that continues to permeate the party scene um, how do you run a, a campaign to make sure that people understand the difference?
0: I think what you said before was key that you talked about, uh, tools, you know, so psychedelics are tools the same way, uh, other tools are, and it can, the tools can be put to many different purposes. So psychedelics can be used in religious contexts and have been for thousands of years for spiritual experiences. Psychedelics can be used in psychotherapeutic contexts, For healing, and they have also been used for quite a long time for that. Or they can be used in recreational celebratory contexts. um, So that really their tools and the context in which they're used, the respect to which is given to them, the purity of the substances that people are able to, to find, all of that contributes to the outcomes. But it's context dependent so that the tool can be used in many different contexts. So that's how I just explain to people is that somebody could use it as a party setting under the name ecstasy and can just have sort of celebratory experiences. And if difficult stuff comes up, they may or may not want to work with it. If they try to suppress it, it could be make them worse off for a long time once these traumas come up to the surface. Or somebody could use it in a therapeutic context to try to really move deep into their issues, work through them but but I want to go back to one thing that you just said you know we've we've heard this term California sober, mm. which means um, you know basically what you said sober except for using psychedelics. so how is it that you are still comfortable saying that using psychedelics fits within a sober lifestyle
1: so for me, it's exactly the same as going for any other quote-unquote operation or any other experience, right? So when I go to see my trauma-informed therapist, we work for a year prior to really figure out and set my intention on what I'm going to do with this journey. And the journey itself lasts five hours and I drive myself home. Hmm. So would I say that that's similar to, you know, my party days of enjoying that? No, not at all. It's a very different thing. That was used as an escape. I have a very specific intention in mind when I go in, and one of them I'm I'm happy to share here is, I would like to experience love the way that I give it. Mm -hmm. And so in that, there's a full unraveling of like why I cannot, past traumas, PTSD that comes up, and then I spend another year sort of unpacking that and synthesizing it and really dealing with it in bite-sized chunks because I've experienced it in a non-fearful way. You eloquently said all of this stuff prior, so I am not um, undergoing this therapy, which it genuinely is for me and has changed my life dramatically to escape. I'm doing it to heal. And I mean, I want to dig in so much more. I feel like the microphone got turned around, but we're going to be right back. That's segment one here with my, my friend Rick Doblin. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. Folks, you are on Better Keep It Locked. We'll be right back for a lot of- Welcome back to Better. We're with my guest, Rick Doblin, founder of MAPS and one of the greatest proponents of psychedelics and use of trauma informed therapy and PTSD. And we were just mid conversation as we went to break. Rick, you were going to say something as we cut off there.
0: Well, we are talking about this uh, California sober concept. And I just wanted to mention that a lot of people are not aware that Bill W., who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, that the first experience that he had that that really helped him go sober was with a drug called Belladonna, which is a psychedelic drug, not used very much because it is also somewhat disorienting, but it was very key to his sobriety. And then more than a decade later, uh, Bill W. experimented with LSD and felt that LSD could play a major role in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you have this whole idea of surrendering to a higher power, of uh, acknowledging your mistakes, of making amends, you know, so much of what the the principles of, of Alcoholics Anonymous are, are what LSD can do and facilitate. And so it was too difficult for him at the time. It became too controversial to bring in LSD into AA. But LSD has been extremely helpful for alcoholics. And you know, there was a study that was recently conducted in England by Dr. Ben Sessa with MDMA for people with alcohol use disorder. And what it showed is that they were running away from traumas, that if you help people process the trauma, then they don't need to run away in alcohol or other substance abuse or other addictive behaviors. So the, the kind of views that people might have that this just doesn't seem to make sense, that you could call yourself sober and have used psychedelics that goes back to the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous, that these two things can coexist. And the other part, and I think what you explained very well too, is that it's not like you're taking psilocybin or whatever psychedelic on a daily basis. It's rare. It's once a year or a few times. It's not the kind of addictive dependent pattern that people associate. So it is fundamentally different than um, taking a drug to escape. And so therefore, I think it does make sense to to say that you could have a sober lifestyle that involves psychedelic experiences on a periodic basis to get deep into your issues and also to get a spiritual connection, to get the strength from that. So it's not just when you take LSD or or psychedelics that, that trauma emerges. Also, you can have these incredible experiences of connection that you can draw strength from, that a lot of the people who are involved with substance abuse problems feel isolated and disconnected and alone and you know, part of the antidote to that is just to feel that you are connected to this magnificent adventure of billions of years that's produced life on Earth. That's, you know, that there's always this web of love underneath everything. That I think psychedelics can be very consistent with a sober lifestyle.
1: I I mean, I feel like we could just end the episode and rerun that last two minutes <laughs> for the <laughs> next thirty. <laughs> like per- period, mic drop. Like that's it's simply it, and just the, you know drilling down to some of the points, the trauma will continue to exist until you'll address it. Right. And traditional talk therapy is incredible. And I can't recommend it high enough. I'm, I'm in it weekly still. I adore it. I think men in particular, you really need to have that space as a safe sounding board. What I use it as is my whiteboard for what I'm going to deal with, with assisted mm-hmm. therapy like okay this is really sort of boiling down into a trust issue that i have from childhood that is because of x is what i've uncovered now i need to visit that and in visiting it i can actually relieve it and you've told so many incredible stories about soldiers about survivors going through and i think what i just want to really hammer home here to folks because you just said it is you are a believer and i am also a believer that this isn't a recreational or monthly or all the time it is a do the therapy the medicine then helps you unstick and you may never go back to it you may never need it again you may continue on the path but it is not a it's not the prescription based trap that we're all caught in at the moment
0: yeah and and i think just to add a little bit to what you said it's the therapy then you have the experience uh, mediated by the psychedelic and then you have therapy after also and that's for the integration and so the fundamental difference between people doing uh, any kind of substance for recreational or you know potentially um, addictive purposes versus therapy is that when you do it for recreation or, or people are dependent on something you're doing it for the experience but for therapy, you're doing it for what you bring back from the experience to change your baseline. And that is the goal. It's not just to go out and have an experience. It's about what can you learn from that experience to change your baseline so that you become ever more capable of dealing with life itself directly without having to mediate it with something that like alcohol that might, uh, you know, reduce the um, the pain of certain things temporarily or, or reduce the emotional intensity, that the goal is to really deepen one's daily life without any substances. And that's why the whole treatment model that we have is three MDMA sessions one month apart within 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions with the goal of making it so at the end, people don't need more MDMA, That's why we're trying to do this in a nonprofit public benefit context, as opposed to a profit maximizing context. Our goal is not to get people to use MDMA as many times as possible. It's to help them use MDMA as few times as possible, combined with therapy to go deep and to make fundamental change. And we know that psychedelics also do promote what's called neuroplasticity which is that you can actually rewire your brain, you can make new neural connections so that one experience or two experiences in a supportive therapeutic context can actually change the way you process fear-based memories from the past or process certain kind of thoughts so that you can actually build a base of going forward in a different way. And that's, I think, what distinguishes what we're talking about from recreational or dependent use to therapeutic or spiritual use it's just it's approached with great respect and they're meant to be used very few times in supportive contexts
1: i can't double click hard enough on the neuroplasticity part of this mm-hmm. conversation which is in a, a person with ptsd that it is contained in the body like i physically had mine in places in my body Mm-hmm. In the the pursuit to release it, I can no longer, in my sober container, walking in the world, access it. My brain and my body have released or rewired mm-hmm. in a way that I can no longer access what that fear, response, trigger, it's, it's actually gone from my body.
0: One of the um, principal investigators of our research sites is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And so he's the principal investigator of our Boston site, and he wrote the book "The Body Keeps the Score." Mm-hmm. And what's what's been amazing, just to say about Bessel, and also about that book, is that it was published around six years ago, and it's the number one best selling book when you combine a paperback and hardcover in America right. these last few weeks and, and the last few years. It's been amazing. And what it means is that people are highly sensitized to the impact of trauma in their lives in so many different ways, and the many different ways that we can approach trying to resolve that trauma. Now, Vessel actually was not involved in what are called phase two studies, which is our sort of pilot studies to figure out how to do phase three. And phase three studies are the final studies required by the FDA to do. Um, prove safety and efficacy to try to get these drugs approved as prescription medicines and so Bessel initially said based on his understanding of treating trauma that we should exclude people who had childhood trauma or people who have what's called complex PTSD which is like not just a single incident but repeated traumatic experiences often from childhood that produce poor attachments poor poor dependence on other people that that we don't trust other people and you know we have difficult time, even trusting therapists or or anybody. And so Mm -hmm. Bessel suggested that um, we exclude those people from phase three because they would make it more difficult for our research to succeed. But we knew that MDMA-assisted therapy seems to work in the hardest cases, and it did work in complex PTSD. So we did enroll them in our uh, phase three studies, and they did great. And that really changed Bessel's attitude about the potential of MDMA, which was even greater than he thought. So I think, you know, where you're saying about trauma stored in the body and then you release them and then you can have, uh, they're they're just, they've changed, you know, literally your, your brain has changed how you process the traumas, the pain in the body has changed and that, that really can be supported and led to permanent change. That's what's so remarkable about what we're talking about.
1: Very much so. And when we come back, I want to dig in further about you always taking the hard road. And yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I need that to really come forward in this conversation because hmm. you have the opportunity, or have had the opportunity, to skew the data, and you're like, no, we need this to be the hardest cases, proven right. consistently. Otherwise, somebody's just going to poke a hole in it. When we come back, Rick Dalb going to tell us a little bit more about the numbers. We're going to dig into those for the data fiends out there, including myself. We're going to talk about that. Keep it locked. Welcome back to Better. It's hard to believe we're halfway through the show already. There's so much more to talk about. But Rick, I think you had another thought just as we were going to break. Please share. Well,
0: I was just very impressed by the fact that you are sharing your own personal experiences as well. And that I I wonder how you've thought about that. I think that that adds tremendously to what you have to say and to your credibility. But some people might think... Oh, that means uh, you know you're biased or might have. So I I wonder how you've come to be comfortable about sharing your own personal experiences.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that prompt. And I think the medicine is a really interesting thing. And I say that very very cleanly and plainly because I knew mushrooms as a party thing when I was a kid. Right? We did we did mushrooms. We hung out. We talked about our feelings. And then I didn't visit them again for a long time. And they came to me in a very specific series of events that uh, were undeniable and i think in that you have these moments um in life where you see a bunch of, of things that happen and then your experience is very critical now i work on the downtown east side of vancouver the unceded territories of squamish musqueam snohomish and tsleil nations one of the largest uh and densest areas of mental health issues of of, of hunger of homelessness i've been here 18 years and every day I feed about you know 2,000 people who are in wow. need as a chef and as my organization. The war on drugs here has never been more aggressive. The fentanyl crisis is literally on my doorstep. And I know that pain as a former um, abuser of both alcohol and drugs. And to know that there is healing in this medicine, it doesn't even feel um, optional to not share about it. Or to not talk about it or to not center it or to not bring it to people it doesn't feel optional uh, it feels like we're doing an incredible disservice to the people who need us most and uh, that's all of us in this mental health crisis suicide numbers skyrocketing with all of these things to know that there is an option and a solution that will not harm you um, to not center that would feel uh yeah i don't know if i would be looking at myself in the mirror the same to to wow. put it very bluntly rick that's great to hear
0: Because that is where a lot of strength comes from, from speaking your truth from your own experience. And that comes through in sincerity and knowledge. So I'm so glad you found your way to the courageous uh, self-sharing that's so important.
1: I appreciate that. And I think the underlying context that you've had to deal with for 45, 50 years is the discrediting because of the slight around these medicines, right? Which is, oh, you're not a serious healer because you're talking about these things. You know, if you were serious, you'd be talking about chemotherapy or X, Y, or Z. And so, you know, you, it could discredit a human being as well. There has definitely been that part of, will people get involved with us in business because of the way that I speak? I mean, this is your whole life, right?
0: Yeah. And so
1: sometimes when people would say, oh, you know,
0: you're, science, your research cannot be trusted because you've taken these substances yourself and you're biased. Oof. My response is very simple, which is that we all have our biases. And the whole point of scientific methodology is to try to reduce experimenter bias to get to what's actually going on underneath. And so when people, instead of criticizing me, what I try to turn it around and say, can you find a way for us to improve our protocol design? we would be glad to try to work on methodology with you because that's really what we're talking about. And you could just as easily say people that have never done psychedelics, if they do research, they're biased in a certain way as well. So it's really about the scientific methodology and that's what I think we need to focus on. And one of the challenges of that in terms of traditional scientific methodology is what's called the double blind study. Mm-hmm. How do you have two identical groups? that are being given, one is being a, being given the treatment with, with what you wanna test, the other is being given a treatment, but they're not actually receiving the, what you wanna test. And people are supposed to be blind, uncertain about which group they're in. Right. And that can work a lot for traditional medications where there's not a lot of subjective experiences based on the medication. But with psychedelics, it's obvious to most people if you've taken them or if you've gotten a placebo. So how do you do a double-blind study? So, So that's one of the main things my dissertation was about, and that's one of the big issues we addressed with the FDA and with Health Canada. But again, it points to the methodology. Let us all work together to improve the scientific methodology, and by sharing about your own personal experiences and by me sharing about mine, that's actually revealing information that can be useful. That's Doing a service to people who want to know, are we biased or not? It's sharing where we come from, and that's so important rather than keeping that hidden.
1: Yeah, and I think going back to how I ended the the last part of our conversation, which was you skew, in my experience of you, which is decades long at this point, you skew towards the hardest way to prove. Yes, always and it's it's never yeah. a this is fun for everybody and easy you you literally will say hey you could have a bad time yeah if this if the context isn't right and the setting isn't right nobody's trying to say this is 100% effective like this is this can be x y or z
0: yeah when i look back at what went wrong in the 60s you could say and what went right in the 60s you know there was this explosion of interest in psychedelics a lot of people using it then there was a massive backlash and so i think one of the things that was a problem, is that the advocates of psychedelics at the time exaggerated the benefits and tried to minimize the risks. Yes. But the critics tried to exaggerate the risks and then block research into the benefits so that there could be no contradictory stories. It was all about risk and it was all about exaggerated risks. And there was actually a success global in stopping scientific research for With psychedelics for decades so i think the solution now is that the advocates have to be the experts on both the risks and the benefits that we have to not exaggerate the benefits not minimize the risks but you know not pretend there are no benefits and and not to pretend that there are no uh, risks either so the the other part of it is with psychedelics having been so stigmatized that we really needed to work with the hardest cases in order to demonstrate to society that had been frightened for you know half a century by stories about uh, psychedelics that exaggerated their risks, we had to work with the hardest cases. So for example, when we do work with post-traumatic stress disorder, we enroll people who have previously attempted suicide. Mm. A lot of studies exclude them for you know, the, the fear that they might commit suicide again. So we have to work with the hardest cases. That's why with Bessel van der Kolk, as I was saying, we needed to work with complex PTSD and people with difficult attachment disorders. We, we needed to work with groups of people for whom the available medications and psychotherapies may have worked for a significant fraction, but left a lot of people refractory to treatment. We had to do the hardest cases and we have to be the most accurate about how we describe the, both risks and benefits.
1: And you have been. And I think as we move into the last segment here, the success rates are something that we're going to dig into with the two month follow ups and the PTSD therapy. Folks, you're on better. Keep it locked. We'll be right back with Rick Dog. welcome back to Better. If you're on the radio with us, this is our last segment, but you know where to catch the rest of the conversation wherever you are streaming podcasts and music. We are there. This is an iHeart original, so we'll be there. We're with my guest today, and honestly, one of my favorite people in the advocacy space because of the clarity at which he delivers information and understanding that both sides, whether it's fear or, or relentless advocacy, need to be spoken with and to. And so we're going to jump into some data at the end of this conversation. And Rick, I, I really want to hand it to you to to share more about the impacts of this and and what we can do going forward.
0: Great, thank you, Mark. Well, let me briefly start out by saying that um, forty years ago is when I first tried MDMA when it was still legal in nineteen eighty two, and my first experience of it was just this has got incredible therapeutic potential. It, it just was remarkable. And then in nineteen eighty four. Is when I worked with the first PTSD patient, and who was suicidal, and I spoke about this in my TED talk, and and you know saw how much benefit she got from it. Then it was '86 that I started MAPS right after MDMA was criminalized, and for six years we were unable to get permission from the FDA for any research at all. All of it was blocked, even studies from Harvard, from UC San Francisco, and that changed in 1992, and then we built uh, the first phase one dose response safety study with MDMA and healthy volunteers that took us through the nineties. And then in 2000 is when we were starting to work with PTSD patients. And we had 16 years of that, of what are called phase two pilot studies, trying to understand who does it work for? What's the dose? Who doesn't it work for? What's your therapeutic method, things like that. And so in uh, November 29th, 2016, we had the end of phase two meeting with FDA and we could go to phase three. And that's, again, the final stage of research to prove safety and efficacy. So we started that in uh, 2018. And in uh, May 10th, uh, 2021, we published the results of our first phase three study. And I'll explain those results in just a second. But I also say that our second phase three study, and you usually have to do two phase three studies to get uh, to prove safety and efficacy, we will be done with that in the middle of November, 2022, we are almost at the completion of the second phase three study. But the results of the first phase three study were so remarkable that at the end of the year, the journal Science publishes a list of the top 10 scientific breakthroughs in the world in the previous year. And Science declared that our paper in Nature Medicine about our first phase three study was one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs. And it was both because of the results that we got, but also because we are the leading edge of this entire field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And there are going to be more studies coming with psilocybin, with uh, 5-MeO-DMT, with uh, ketamine, with, with others that, that we are the leader of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So the results that we got are remarkable. Now, the first thing is, as we talked about, we have to work with the hardest cases. So we only worked with people that had severe PTSD. And we had people that had, on average, 14 years of PTSD, but more than a third of our subjects had PTSD for more than 20 years. What brought the averages down is a fair number of the people were veterans who had more recent war-related PTSD. We also worked with people that have previously attempted suicide. So we had about one-third of the subjects had what's called positive behavior. Either they had actually attempted to to kill themselves or they had like gone to a bridge and sat on there and decided, you know, whether or not to jump off, fortunately decided not to jump off, but, but positive behavior towards suicide. One third of the people had had gone that far. We also had people that are high on what's called the dissociative subtype. One of the main strategies when you're being traumatized, particularly if it involves physical pain is that you remove yourself. You're not there. You dissociate in your mind. And that can be a very successful short-term strategy to survive. But whenever you try to come back to to being in your body, to being where you are, the pain is so overwhelming that you keep dissociating mm-hmm. and further. So that's often where people go into substance abuse, you know, to continue that disconnection from their, their memories and their biographies. So we worked with the most difficult cases. Around two-thirds of them were women. The veterans tend to get the most media attention, right. but the most people with PTSD are women from sexual abuse, domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, complex PTSD. We had people from uh, Columbine, from uh, PTSD from school shootings. So a range of causes of, of PTSD. And what we then... We're able to do to persuade the FDA, also the European Medicines Agency, that we compare therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with MDMA. Right. So the double blind doesn't particularly work well. And we did show in terms of this idea of working with the hardest cases that when you give low dose of MDMA, you give therapy with low dose of MDMA and therapy with full dose that you can cause some confusion with people about, are they getting, which group are they in the low dose or the full dose? But what we showed to our surprise was that the low doses of MDMA made people uncomfortable. Mm. It's like turbulence when you're just, uh, you know, taking off in an airplane at the beginning, there's more turbulence than when you get above the clouds, it's smooth sailing. But we showed that the people with low dose MDMA actually They still got better, but they didn't get as much benefit as the people that got therapy with no MDMA at all. Mm -hmm. So that's where we said to the FDA, it will be more difficult for us to show a difference between the two groups if we use therapy without MDMA, with an inactive placebo. But we could give you blinding if you want, but that's going to make our job easier. And we recommend you make our job harder. Yes. Because really the question is, if you can do this with therapy, why bother add a drug? We didn't want to have therapy compromised by low-dose MDMA that made people uncomfortable. So that's the design of the study. And then what we ended up showing is that at the two-month follow-up, this is after three eight-hour experimental sessions one month apart and uh, 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, that at the end of that, 42 hours of therapy, 32% of the people that had therapy without MDMA at the two-month follow-up, no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. So this is showing that our therapy is quite effective for people that have had PTSD an average of 14 years. They've been through medication. They've been through therapy. And still, with our therapeutic approach, just about one-third no longer qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. But when you add MDMA, it doubles to two thirds, 67%, no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. Wow. And another 21% had what's called clinically significant reductions of PTSD symptoms, means that while they still qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD, their life was changed because the symptoms had gone significantly down. And over time, or if they could have had a forced session, which we couldn't do in the protocol, they might also no longer qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. So that meant that we had 12% that were non-responders. So it was highly statistically significant. And there's another way to look at this, which is called effect size. And an effect size of one is one standard deviation from the norm. So the effect size of Zoloft and Paxil, the drugs that are approved by FDA for PTSD are like 0.3, 0.4, 0.54, you know, very, um, small to low medium, but our effect size in the group that got therapy plus MDMA was 2.1, two standard deviations from the norm, remarkable, nor incredible. So what we're demonstrating is that the FDA designation of this as a breakthrough therapy was really justified and that this is a remarkable healing technology and a tool that we believe will eventually be used by thousands and thousands of therapists. We hope to train 25,000 therapists in this decade, and we think that we're going to have approval in early 2024 by FDA, and over the next decade, there'll probably be about five or 6,000 psychedelic clinics set up in America only, also way more in the rest of the world, to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapy with therapists cross-trained with MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin to provide customized, personalized treatment to each individual patient.
1: It's absolutely incredible, and we are literally running against the clock right now as I can feel the the music breathing down our necks (laughs) in the last segment of the radio, but we are not finished here today. First of all, Rick, I don't know if there's enough thank yous in the world for you as a tip of the spear. You have been relentless in your decades of work here. We are talking about just under 70% of people who suffer with crippling PTSD. We know the number of suicides each year. This is directly correlating to saving lives every second. And as this gets across and this medicine hits people, why it's so critical to have you here today and to have you everywhere we can um, is because this is simple. It's dead simple, and people deserve to feel safe, they deserve to feel seen, and they deserve to be able to live rich and full lives. So thank you for doing the work you're doing, and thank you for joining us here on Better Today. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Real great time. We're going to have you back for certain. Folks, if you are tuned into the radio, please jump over to the podcast at this moment so you can hear the rest of this conversation. Until I see you again, stay safe. We appreciate your attention and your intention. You've been on Better. And we know what time it is now. That, that <laughs> sentence, I mean, what you were talking about there felt like it was about a third done. I would just like to hand the mic directly back to you to continue that that stream of thought and what you were sharing with us.
0: Sure. Um, one of the things that we also discovered in phase three, which is really important to scaling, is that we had 15 sites. We had two sites in Israel, two in Canada, and 11 throughout the United States. So we're doing this in three countries. But the important thing is that there's an analysis, statistical analysis, to see if you have a site effect. What that means is, are you getting way better results from certain sites and not from other sites? And the way that they're concerned about that is, let's say that you get most of your subjects from a few sites and that's where your good results are, but then the other sites don't work so well. What that means is, that your therapy might not be scalable. It's dependent upon these highly trained therapists at these few sites that are working well. So we did not have that. We did not have site-to-site effects, meaning also we took our most experienced therapists from phase two, we took them out of phase three, and then had them train the therapist for phase three. So the fact that we had no site-to-site effect means that we really believe that we can train thousands and thousands and thousands of therapists. This is not dependent upon a few highly trained therapists that have been doing psychedelics since college and are now in their 60s or 70s, and you know these are the, the experts. It, it's not dependent upon that. It, the MDMA provides an incredible opportunity for therapy, and we can train new therapists in the thousands and thousands. That's, that's what it means to have no site-to-site effect. Okay. So I think that we were um, really remarkable uh, other finding was that the people on the dissociative subtype, the people that were the hardest to treat, the people that Bessel van der said don't enroll in the study, that they actually did better on average than the other subjects. They were so hungry for this getting back connected to themselves Mm -hmm. that once they were in a position where the MDMA in a therapeutic context could do that for them, they just like soaked it up and were able to make enormous progress. So that is the case that it does seem to work best with the hardest cases. And so that's a quick summary. The the other part people often want to know is statistical significance. Mm -hmm. So statistical significance is required. You have to have two statistically significant phase three studies. The first um, criteria is what's called 0.05, which means basically a nickel out of a dollar, 1 20th. If there's 0.05, that means that there's only one chance in 20 that your findings are random that are not due to your intervention. And that's statistical significance. So only 5% that maybe it's not due to your intervention, the 95% that it's due to your intervention. What we got was 0.0001, one in 10,000 chance that what we find was random and had nothing to do With the actual MDMA assisted therapy. So all of those findings together mean that we actually met all the criteria that FDA has for going to the next step, the new drug approval process with only one phase three study. But because of the controversy, FDA required us to do the second phase three study. And so we are about a month away from completing the second phase three study, we did a, what's called an interim analysis when the study was 60% of the way done, which is permitted by FDA. We're on track for statistical significance. The safety record was excellent and very favorable. So we think it's very likely that we will get a successful second phase three study. Can't say for sure. And if that is the case, we think that it's exceptionally likely that by the first quarter of 2024, that we should have FDA approval, and then DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, needs to reschedule. And they only have 90 days to do that. They must reschedule within 90 days. So we think um, beginning around the first quarter of 2024 or early into the second quarter, um, we should have both FDA and DEA approval and should be able to roll this out if indeed our second phase three study is successful. And so the, the only other thing that I really wanted to Um, add was just to help people understand what is the therapeutic method, Mm -hmm. because it's really about the therapy. It's the drug makes the therapy more effective. And so the way in which our therapeutic approach differs from most treatments for PTSD, which are cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, uh, prolonged exposure, is that they're very scripted. There's certain things you do at each meeting and you're supposed to be, you know, speaking directly about your one index trauma but we believe that with mdma that what's happening is that we're catalyzing this emergence into awareness Mm -hmm. of feelings and emotions that were previously too painful for people to deal with and that what's emerging is with a certain kind of uh, inner healing intelligence Mm -hmm. so we all know that if our body hurts, if we get a scratch or, or we break something, that there's a move towards wholeness, that our body heals itself below our level of conscious awareness. And we believe there's something similar in the psyche. And that when you give a psychedelic that that sort of brings things more into awareness, the order in which things emerge are related to this sort of inner healing intelligence. And so the core of our therapeutic method is that we are teaching people how to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. We're not the healer. The MDMA is not the healer. And that whatever is emerging is in some kind of an order that, that goes beyond the therapist's conscious awareness and the patient's conscious awareness. And we support the experience and expression of it. Sometimes you talked earlier about pains in your body, that trauma is stored in your body. Sometimes there's no story, there's no words, there's just physical pain. Yes. And we encourage people to exaggerate the pain, to let it out, to not suppress it, to feel it. And then when they do that, often that pain turns into a memory mm. and into something that previously was so painful that they just could experience it as bodily pain. Even the thought of it was too painful. So we believe in this inner healing intelligence we support people to experience and express whatever it is maybe it's just screaming and, and yelling or shaking to let out the trauma or maybe it's telling a story calmly about what happened or maybe it's a telling a story without calm but t- but telling the story or maybe it's metaphorical so many people have this kind of poetic metaphorical like one of the veterans you know that there was the uh, violent side of him was a gorilla locked inside a cage inside Mm -hmm. his chest. You know, so people are telling themselves stories in metaphor and poetry and of the eight hour session around half the time, people's eyes are closed. They're listening to music. They're having these inner experiences. The other half the time they're talking to the therapist, helping them clarify their thinking and feelings, but there's no particular order Mm -hmm. at all. So it's really this idea of, respecting this inner healing intelligence and realizing that people have to do the hard work themselves. They can turn toward or they can turn away. right? And that their decision to turn toward an experience is the key to healing. And it takes courage on their part and the safe surrounding and the MDMA helps them to do that, but that they need to learn how to do that not only in therapy under the influence of mdma but after the therapy on their own and what we showed in phase two which we don't have the data yet for phase three is that the one-year follow-up that people are doing better on average Mm. than at the two-month follow-up that Mm. people have learned how to keep healing themselves afterwards so for fda for regulatory agencies, they are going to approve this drug or review it for approval on the basis of the two-month data. Yes. But the insurance companies and the national health insurances of com- countries around the world that, that are wise enough to have national health insurance, they are going to really pay for it only if it's durable. Yes. Because it's very labor intensive. So if it just fades, then what's the point of it? I mean, we won't get you know much uh, reimbursement. But in phase two, we showed that people keep getting better on their own after we're done with the therapy. And I think that's really the key factor. And we'll see fairly shortly what our long-term data is from our phase three studies, from our first phase three study. But overall, I just want people to understand how we do this in therapy. And so if people are um, taking these substances, let's say outside of a therapeutic context, there are lessons that they could learn from the therapeutic context, which is when difficult stuff comes up, it's best for you to turn toward it rather than turn away from it. That's it. And one of our main sayings is that difficult is not the same as bad. Yes. And what is bad is resistance, mm-hmm. and resistance makes it worse. And also, if you're in a psychedelic experience and you're starting to resist what's happening, it actually takes longer. When you open up to something, so uh, I'll just, this is a poetic statement by Stan Groff, uh, you know, again, the, sort of the pioneer LSD researcher of the world, and, um, but what he said is the full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. What that means is that if you fully experience your grief, you will move out of grief. If you fully experience your fear, and you survive that, then you will be able to move that from foreground to background. That, that if you fully experience this feeling of being trapped, that you're never going to get out of it. Sometimes people under psychedelics think, oh, I've gone crazy. I'm going to be stuck here forever. You know, If you fully give into the hopelessness, then it turns into hope. It changes. The essence of life is change. Everything's in motion. And if you resist, it lasts longer. If you open to it, even though it may be more painful in the short run, that's the way you learn from it and move through it. So I think there's lessons for people from the therapeutic context and how we approach this in therapy for how people may
1: do this on their own as well. Incredible, brother. Just incredible. And I'm going to do my best to synthesize that last 10 minutes because I think what you've taken us through is not only a hopeful journey, it's a guaranteed destination. And so let me let me share how I experienced it, which is, The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which we've said multiple times, is getting some of the best results they've ever gotten on any clinical trial period ever in the existence of it from this study. That's just happening. That's the math that's going on right now. And yes, there's more to go. And I appreciate you consistently coming back and saying this is not finished yet, but this is the way it's going because that, you know, we're not there till we're there. And especially exactly. in decades of work, we know this. But secondary, that the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, the leaders in the war on drugs that are responsible for a lot of atrocity, and in my particular perspective, and this is my opinion only, um, that the DEA will then have to decriminalize or change the class of this particular substance, which means it will no longer be controlled in a different way.
0: Well, what they will do is they will De-schedule, reschedule the medical pill, right? but the MDMA itself will remain in Schedule 1. So that's where we're actually working at the U.S. Sentencing Commission level, okay. where they set the penalties for um, illegal sales and use and possession. And so we're going to be trying to reduce those penalties. Because right now, if you get caught with a, a, a pile of MDMA in one hand and the same amount of cocaine in the other hand, you actually go to jail longer for the MDMA. It's insane. And it was made at a time of hysteria about you know the science of MDMA, brain damage, holes in your brain, which is not true and has been disproven. So we need to work at the Sentencing Commission level on those sentences. But I think we also have to recognize that the – police themselves suffer an enormous amount of trauma from their work. And so we have, if people have seen the Netflix documentary about Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, Mm -hmm. there's four episodes. Third episode is about MAPS and MDMA and and, and our work. And it ends near the end with a police officer who's also a psychotherapist going through our training to be able to give MDMA-assisted therapy to police officers with PTSD, Um, partially it's because somebody in his uh, area, a police officer committed suicide and his police chief was aware of that. So while indeed the, the DEA has been counterproductive and our drug war has been counterproductive, we need to realize that we need to reach out to police officers, to prison guards, as well as to prisoners where there's an enormous amount of trauma. One of our main values is healing for all. And I think at the very beginning, we talked about both victims and perpetrators. Sure. And this is actually as much or more for perpetrators as it is for victims. People who are perpetrators often have been victimized themselves. And it's often harder to forgive yourself than it is to forgive other people. So really healing for all is our long-term goal, mass mental health, global uh spiritualized humanity is what we're aiming for. And, and we hope that we achieve these th- and help humanity before we uh, go off the cliff and destroy ourselves and the planet.
1: So let me just double click on the courage that it will consistently take to sit on an unpopular side of a topic with an advocate group. What you just shared around enforcement is not going to be popular on the advocacy side, Right. It's a right, right. And, and it's not. It's going to be very, very challenging for people to hear, particularly for someone from someone who they they look to for guidance in these parts. But I think it's critical to continue to humanize humans. Yes, you have to humanize yes. humans. That doesn't mean forgiveness of a police state or brutality or any of those things. It's to say that the system itself is in play, and if we could change the way that people interact based on their profession instead of them holding all of this trauma and continuing to perpetuate violence, if we could change the violence at its root causality, which could be the continued PTSD creation or trauma or whatever that may yeah. be, we could change the world. That is that is a very, I, I share that vision. I believe in it and I love yeah. in it. But the war on drugs, and I think, you know, this is, A completely separate uh, conversation that you and I could have for hours and hours, but I think we can recenter it back into how this study is going to unfold, which is from an experience, and I can be part of your case three study. This is me chiming in as part of your data right now. (laughs) In the long tail of these experiences, you learn how to heal yourself because you are more compassionate with yourself, Mm -hmm. period. You start to have compassion for your past behaviors you start to have understanding that your traumas do not define you, that the actions that others have perpetrated on you are not because of who you are, that often they come from their own trauma and that they, you just create a deeper awareness and forgiveness within self. So I feel very strongly that stage three is going to be a home run and my excitement around this stuff couldn't genuinely be any higher and I want us to have this conversation about the need being at an all-time high for this work because of the war on drugs. And this is a, a quote of yours that I love, which is, the war on drugs is seen more and more around the world, not as a solution to drug abuse, but as a contributor to drug abuse. We are in the midst of a massive crisis, opioid overdoses, fentanyl overdoses, alcoholism, deaths of despair. The need is greater than ever before. And I feel like we spent a lot of this episode really truly being excited about where this is going as far as being legalized. And as far as it being able to be in thousands and thousands of practitioners' hands, but as today, when I walk back out in my streets right here, I will see intravenous drug users who are friends of mine who are on desk stuff, like really happening right now because of the further war on drugs. How does this dovetail together? If you have some thoughts on that, I would, I would love to hear them.
0: So there has been research with Ibogaine for the treatment of opiate dependence, um, but not very much. So, Ibogaine is illegal in the United States. I don't think there's been a single instance of somebody using Ibogaine in a recreational context in an abusive manner. It was criminalized in the 60s in the United States because um, the police busted some LSD dealers and they actually had Ibogaine as well. And so they thought, oh, let's criminalize this thing. But Ibogaine is not illegal in Canada, it's not illegal in Mexico. It's not illegal in Europe, but it's one of the key psychedelics that has unique properties of helping people go through opiate withdrawals without a lot of the the pain within a couple of days and giving people psychological experience, both of their past traumas coming up, but also of a spiritual connection. So Ibogaine can be tremendously helpful for substance abuse. And the war on drugs has criminalized Ibogaine in the United States and made it more difficult for this, now the National Institute on Drug Abuse, just to sort of show how frustrating things are, they gave a six point five million dollar grant to a company to develop a non psychedelic ibogaine. What? Which? So they give money to a for profit company to try to take the psychedelic part out of ibogaine. Nothing ever came from that. That whole line of research has gone nowhere and has not helped a single person. But the National Institute on Drug Abuse refused to fund research with psychedelic Ibogaine, even though there was major reports about how it was helpful. And what has actually turned things around a lot in the United States, as far as MDMA for PTSD, has been uh, hundreds and hundreds of Navy SEALs and others have gone down to Mexico for Ibogaine experiences, followed near the end by Mm 5-MeO-DMT, to help them process their traumas and their traumatic brain injury and rewire their brains. And, and that's built bipartisan support for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So I think the tragedy that you see when you walk out the door is made worse by the drug war that, that we should have had. I began as a medicine 30 years ago, it was already clear or more than 30 years ago, but we don't yet. And part of it is because it's in the public domain And, you know, the pharma companies are are looking for things that they can patent. They're not looking for things to to develop that is in the public domain. Um, Ibogaine does have risks in terms of the heart. And so it needs to be given in a medicalized setting. But again, it's just that the war on drugs has blocked the development of treatments for substance abuse and also by demonizing users has pushed them further away from getting help and by criminalizing harm reduction. I mean, all the stuff about needle exchange for uh, people who are uh, injecting drug users, getting AIDS, we try to make it the worst for people who are addicted so that they become an example to others not to use it. But what it does is it just makes it worse for way more people. It, it doesn't really help. So the drug war is so counterproductive and it it's never really been about treating drug abuse. It's always been about persecuting minorities Mm. from the whole history of it. It's about a tool for the police to persecute minorities. It's, it's not about uh, treating substance abuse or, or or trying to reduce substance abuse. And I'll I'll just say that I was just in Mexico city a few days ago and speaking at their Institute of psychiatry and they, they want to start MDMA research uh, and they haven't had psychedelic research in Mexico for the uh, 50 years. But while I was there, I was surprised to meet uh, a member of the International Narcotic Control Board. So the there's 13 people appointed by countries of the world, ratified by the WHO and the UN, and they monitor compliance with the International Drug Control Treaty. So the International Narcotic Control Board is a very important group within the whole prohibition scheme. And this particular psychiatrist, uh, we talked about how In the Philippines, uh, Duterte was using the drug war to murder uh, drug users, drug dealers, uh, political opponents. And a previous member of the International Narcotic Control Board I met at a human rights conference about the human rights abuses in the name of the drug war. And so this particular fellow that I met in Mexico is very sympathetic with uh, psychedelic psychotherapy. And he uh, affirmed that the international drug control treaties permit medical research and medical use of psychedelics right. and other substances too. So there's no conflict between what we're doing and the international drug control treaties, but we do have, I began criminalized still in the United States right. when we had over a hundred thousand people die of opiate or uh, fentanyl or other drug overdoses in one year. It's, it's, it's worse than ever before. So this idea that the drug war is helping, and a lot of people are dying from uh, impure drugs mixed with fentanyl. So the drug war makes it so that you don't know what you're taking. And there's an incentive for dealers to just make. So in any case, I think what we're going to do over time is really replace the drug war with a more compassionate approach to offer treatment, to treat drug users as human beings, and to move both towards uh, treatment on demand and to legal access to pure drugs with honest drug education. Yes. And peer support and harm reduction methods wherever possible, drug checking. So I think that chances for change right now are better than they've ever been. Yeah, and I'm very hopeful that what we need though is exactly what what you're doing, which is public education. We we need to take these findings from the lab that are still, you know, not known to everyone to everybody and to sort of make these findings known so that people will be ready to change. And also those people that are in despair from their own drug abuse or their own PTSD, don't commit suicide, that they wait until these drugs become available or, you know, that, that, and it's not that far into the future. So that that's one of the main messages is for people that are suffering, you know, hold on, uh, you know, help is coming.
1: Yes, very much so. And I think you touched on so many beautiful things there. And there's, you know, as we discuss in any study, in, in design thinking methodology, for me, I like to talk about bad actors a lot. And like, who are the bad actors in this scenario? And I think what you, the biggest threat that you propose when you talk about this vision for clinics and people coming out, the biggest threat you propose is to capitalism and the financial rewards go to practitioners and clinicians instead of the medicine. And so if, yes, exactly. if we're not making a racking up the dollars on prescriptions for the bigger companies, we're actually putting money equitably into centers and the practitioners themselves who are creating the container for self-healing. Well, the energy is being moved into the person who's healing and the person who's holding space for the healing. The medicine is a is, you know, it's incremental in in comparison to a lifelong prescription that keeps you numb from your trauma it is is a completely revolutionary act around labor force around the encouragement of financial prosperity for healing like that that part is i think a really important thing to pull out because that's what we need we need to encourage more people like when we think about the the devaluation of critical services and people in service i think right now when you said needle exchange about my dear friends at the overdose prevention site which is two blocks from here That is literally drug users monitoring drug users because of the toxic drug supply so that they don't die in front of each other. Right? Right. Narcan in hand because we continue to criminalize people, because we continue to criminalize poverty. We continue to criminalize because we don't have those choices. And the the other thing that came very alive for me when we were talking is much like the healing revolution, breathwork, somatic breathwork, yoga, all of these things, access of that has never been democratized to the people who need it the most. Right? It's it's an elite proposition. And so I think, myself included, let me name myself in this, the only reason that I got access to the medicine is because I was running in circle and continue to do so with people who were working in large tech companies who are looking for healing in a space. And so I got access to it because of that. Not because of my work on the front lines or in triage, but because of my access to privilege. And so what you're proposing fills my whole fucking heart up because I know that who needs this medicine most, I work with every day. And for them to be able to get it, we require a revolution, and that revolution also needs to have put money in the hands of the practitioners who can then discern who they practice with as well. And that's always, always been the case, brother. So there's so much trickle down from your work, and I, I wanted to say all of those things, Because that is, if the tip of the spear is the data in the clinical studies to move the mountains of the systems we are already at play within, which is what you're doing and what you've done, the bottom line effect of that truly is democratization of access and decriminalization for people who critically need these things. So thank you. Exactly right, Mark.
0: Yeah, healing for all. And and particularly when we think about What we need to do is to go to those places where there's an enormous amount of suffering, but not necessarily any money. We need to really move all over the world to these humanitarian crisis areas where a lot of them can benefit greatly from MDMA therapy. But I think one of the key things that we're going to have to learn that we don't know yet is really about group therapy, Mm -hmm. how to do it in, in a, there's a lot of countries actually that don't have very many therapists or psychiatrists. Right. So we have to find other ways to do it. And I think ironically that some of this group therapy is going to look a lot like raves. Talk to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, people are taking MDMA in large groups. A lot of them are getting healing, but but we need to have a little bit more of a therapeutic perspective than just recreational. Certainly. But you know, when you talk to people that go to raves, a lot of them talk about the healings that they've got from those yes. situations. So we just really need to have, again, Peer support, pure drugs, um, kind of a therapeutic framework where if things get difficult, you don't run away, you go into it, you go toward it, and and you can have areas at rapes where here's a room where people are confronting their trauma, and you need to do both, and that's what we do at Burning Man. We, we have these um, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that we organize to provide support for people who are experimenting with psychedelics, but end up getting into difficult spaces. So, mm-hmm. this last Burning Man, we had uh, about 550 people come for help. Yeah, either while they're high or wanting to integrate what happened to them beforehand. Or, so I think that um, going to the humanitarian crises of the world and where there's massive amounts of refugees and all, we have to find new approaches but i think that we will definitely and i think that we will develop new group therapy models and it's not about the money it's about uh, healing humanity and healing for all
1: a hundred percent and you did again you talk about burning man and the the rave scene or the dancing or the electronic scene which continues today in great droves and it is a space for healing but i think what it also serves as in my personal experience is i connect with other like-minded individuals where it's safe to to share and I build a community external to that one event or that one experience, which then in my sober state, I have people that I can talk to about my experiences and our shared traumas or shared thoughts and we create community externally. And I think those are, that's where we start to really see the rubber hit the road because other people are introduced into community and healing and knowledge. They get data. They can be proponents of this work and they can really push the needle forward on it because there is, I just got to say, there's no danger here right? The danger is to the dollar. And I think that's where you're going to consistently see this movement, you know, and I'm speaking to the audience, not to you, Rick, who are on the front line of this every day, but really like getting behind the supporting, if you have a story, sharing your truth with people uh, and and just coming to the forefront with the fact that this medicine saves lives, full stop. Well, Brick. It has been an honor to have you here today. I feel like this conversation could go for hours and hours, but I know what your schedule looks like. I've seen it. Yes. I've seen your schedule. And so I am going to um, do whatever I have to do with the MAPS management to get you back after the stage three study so you can share jubilantly um, with us the successes. I look forward to that, Mark. That would be a joy to come back. Oh, brother, thank you again for your time. Any closing words that you wanted to share with with the audience?
0: I guess the main one is, again, that there is hope. That you know, people who are facing despair, um, you know, don't give up, and, and that we think that within um, a few years, and, and we hope, likely, that that MDMA will be available. Um, you know, I, I'd like to just, I guess, mention that we're going to have the world's largest psychedelic conference ever in June in 2023 in Denver, and Denver is going to have on the ballot this November an initiative to um, create access to plant psychedelics. And and so far it looks like it will actually pass. So I'd like to invite people, if they want to know more about the research, to uh, consider um, psychedelicscience.org or maps.org to check out, to join us at the conference, to learn about what's the latest, what you can bring back to to where you all live. And that I think together we will be able to build a a much healthier, uh, better world.
1: There's no question. And what a great way to finish our show called Better. Uh, Folks also linked here um, will be resources for yourself. If you're having any thoughts uh, or you are struggling mentally, as always, the resources are linked here. And we encourage you heavily to reach out for any sort of help. Um, And again, all of Rick's other... incredible talks will be linked down below if you haven't seen his ted talk that was done five (laughs) blocks from where i'm sitting uh it is it is a must and it is a great resource and tool to share with folks who would like to understand a little bit better without feeling threatened or in any way pressured into an understanding but simply just to to get um, what's going on so you can have easier conversations with friends and loved ones Uh, You've been on better. I am your host, Mark Brand. It has been my honor to hold this space and get extraordinarily excited multiple times with my friend Rick Dalvin. Thank you. It's a pleasure.